Some of you have read the Chronicles of Narnia. Common, especially among Christians. Uh, and so you might remember that there's a law for Narnia's talking animals. If you haven't read them, then you should know it's a world of talking animals. It's important. And the law for talking animals in Narnia is if they act like normal, dumb beasts, then they'll become like them. Um, they will lose the ability to reason and to talk. Uh, Aslan has said to them, out of them, out of the dumb beasts you were taken, and into them you can return. Echoing from dust you were taken to dust you will return. That's what Aslan, their maker, says. It's built into Narnia. It's a law. It's, a, it's not a decree. It's not, it is not just a decree, I say, um, that can be changed or altered. It, it's built in how things are. Of course, it's how things are because that's how Aslan, their maker, made it to be. That's what we call natural law. If you ever heard the term natural law, that's what it means. That which is built in by the maker. And Lewis had based that idea on how God made the earth, where truth is just everywhere, hidden in plain sight. There is a way things are. And in Jesus' teaching called the Sermon on the Mount, that's our gospel passage that was read for us this morning. We come to it today in the season of Epiphany. In that sermon, Jesus is teaching natural law. God's design for the world. And countless people who don't know Jesus, who have not yielded to him, have read the Sermon on the Mount have delighted in it, have, have loved catching glimpses of truth in it. Mahatma Gandhi is notable for this. He said, Christ's Sermon on the Mount fills me with bliss, even today, years after he had first read it. Its sweet verses have the power today to quench my agony of soul. But, so Gandhi caught glimpses of truth there, but he missed the very heart of the message that sets all of that in place, which is Jesus is the king. Gandhi did not submit to Jesus as the king. So even as Jesus is there on the mount taking the veil off and revealing natural law, the essential message of that sermon is Jesus is Lord. So let's look. That's where we are today. We're in Matthew chapter 5. 1 through 20, and, and following. In this moment, Jesus was, first of all, he's speaking to a Jewish audience as their Messiah, as their anointed promised king. And so it's, it's with that primary sense, that moment, and that primary meaning uh, that flow out of that that we have to contextualize. It's there that we have to begin. Jesus as the Messiah speaking to Jews. So he sits down on the mountainside, and Matthew tells us he sat down and he opened his mouth, and he taught them. Matthew records his first teaching. This is his first sermon in the Gospel of Matthew. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That statement, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, 
That begins a series of nine statements of blessedness, often called the Beatitudes, the blesseds. Blessed are those who mourn, who are meek, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, and supremely you who are persecuted on Jesus' account. He begins there. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, the Messiah, the promised king, speaking about his kingdom. Well, when Jesus begins these statements, there are some associations, you know, like connections that are made quickly. They come together. So this man who John the Baptist had declared to be the Christ, who'd been going about Galilee, he'd gone about the Decapolis, he'd been in Jerusalem and Judea, he'd been casting out demons, he'd been healing the sick. Now he sits down on a mountainside and he takes the authority to declare who's blessed, which is to say, who's blessed, who's not. Who's blessed? Who's under the curse? This focus, this, uh, this teaching about blessedness. It might recall something to you. It definitely recalled something to those Jews who were gathered. It recalled Moses on another mountain. Moses giving the words of God. Moses declaring who is blessed. Deuteronomy 11, and then again in Deuteronomy 28, Moses set before the people blessings and curses. Blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today. And curses, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but you turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today. So as Jesus begins this message on a mountain, in the context of all that he's been doing, delivering, healing, revealing power, revealing authority, by beginning with blessings, he is, he's communicating his special role as lawgiver. This, this had been prophesied. So for those who are attentive, those, who, those Jews who are gathered and they're listening and they're paying attention to all that's gone on and they see what he's doing and what he's saying, they catch too. Deuteronomy 18. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself We'll require, it of, we will require it of him for a long, long time, centuries. This statement had been understood to be about the Messiah. This prophet that God would raise up in Moses' seat, that's the Messiah. He's going to be a prophet and a king. And so here Jesus takes up that role. He's been declared to be the king. Now he takes on that authority of prophet and king. So he puts the crowds in mind of the law with, these, with the setting 
on the mountain and with the blessings. And then he puts them in mind of the place of Israel in God's plans. So what is this kingdom all about? How does he do this? Verses 13 and 14, he says, after the blesseds, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. That is, you were to season the nations. That's what Israel was for. You were to bless the nations. You were to shine the light of God's holiness so that all the nations would be able to see. All the nations would know the truth. All the, no all the nations would come to know the Father. That's what you were for. That's why you were called out as his own. And so it's, it's with these frames, the blessings, the purpose of Israel, that Jesus puts these people, this crowd, in mind of the law and the prophets. And so the crowd, they're now thinking in terms of law. They're now thinking, uh, they're, they're thinking of the prophets' continual calls to faithfulness, the promises of healing. And with that, they cannot help but think about Israel's colossal failure. This wasn't a new theme. This was very present in Israel of the day. The failure of Israel to fulfill these, this call that they'd been given, to be a light to the nations. The salt had lost its taste. When Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, when salt's lost its taste, what good is it? They knew that to be true. There was no contesting of that. Salt had lost its taste. And so it's there, with that framework, that Jesus makes clear, verse 17 and 18, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. So this thing that I've brought to your mind, that, that you're now thinking about, I have not come to abolish this, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished, until all is fulfilled, until all has come to its completion. So speaking as the lawgiver, Jesus upholds the law as right, righteous. So in what sense, then, is, is he fulfilling the law and the prophets? They didn't come to abolish them, to fulfill them. How can he say that the law is unbreakable? As Christians, we're no doubt, we put in mind of Paul, who says all those who rely on works of the law are under a curse. This thing that spoke blessing, those who rely on it for righteousness are under a curse. So in this sermon, not my sermon, Jesus' sermon, uh, even in this opening, it runs for through chapter 7, it's multiple chapters, Jesus is beginning to remove the mists of incomprehension the mists of confusion, and to reveal the mysteries that had lain in plain sight in the law 
for centuries. Long hidden. In Deuteronomy 11, it's back to the law, to which Jesus is hearkening, he's putting them in mind. Moses gave the essence of the law. There, he presented the blessings and the curses. He presented the way that uh, righteousness is lived out. And then he gives this essence, 11, chapter 11, verse 22. If you will be careful to do all the commandment that I command you to do, loving the Lord your God, walking in all his ways, and holding fast to him, then the Lord will drive out these nations before you. You see what Moses did? What God spoke through Moses? If you will do what I have commanded you to do, which is love the Lord your God, walk in his ways, hold fast to him. What is the law all about? That. The law is all about loving the Lord your God, walking in his ways, holding him, doing that, loving him, holding fast, walking with him, brings blessing. Doing otherwise brings curse. Doing other than loving God is, in fact, living out the curse. Doing other than holding fast to God is living the curse. So sitting on the mountain, there's Jesus. He's revealing this. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. So in one sense, what he's saying is, the law is always being fulfilled. It's just the way things are. The law that God gave through Moses is natural law. It's always being lived out. Whether, whether you're acknowledging it or not, it's being lived out. Those who love the Almighty God and walk in His ways are, in fact, blessed because His ways are best. Knowing Him, holding fast to Him is the design for humanity. It's how we were made. This is what I was saying to the kids. We were made to pray. We were made to talk to him. We were made to live out his design, to live according to it in closeness, in dependence on him. It yields flourishing. He set down the high points in the law. He set down the wisdom of it. But the heart of it was always there, even grammatically. I think I will not talk about the grammar. But even grammatically, we can read the Beatitudes with the heart first, like this. It could easily be translated this. It would be an accurate translation. The poor in spirit, that is the humble-hearted, are blessed. We've set it down, blessed are the poor in spirit. It's equally true to say, the poor in spirit. You, humble-hearted people, are blessed. They have the kingdom of heaven. The ones who mourn are blessed. 
they will be comforted. The meek, the meek, those who refuse to exalt themselves, even if they have good reason to, that's what meek means, they're blessed. The inheritance of the whole earth will be theirs. The ones who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those ones are blessed. The merciful are blessed. The pure in heart are blessed. Because the pure in heart, they are going to see the object of their desire, God himself. So what we're hearing, we're hearing Jesus say, is that blessing or curse follows what the heart loves. What the heart loves That's the middle. That's the center of it. What the heart loves, the will chooses. Blessing and curse, it flows out of what the heart loves. The heart of this matter is the heart. We will choose what we've set our affections on. And it was was always that way. It was that way from the beginning. It was that way from Eden. God's design for people is to love what is good to love what's right. And the purpose of the moral law, once a fall came in, the purpose of the gift of the moral law was to guide people in that way into righteousness by cultivating not legalism, but cultivating a love for God. It it was right there at the beginning when Moses gave it. The heart of this law is to love him. So, in one very important sense, Jesus on the mountain, as the lawgiver, is revealing that the moral law is binding because it's just true. It's just true. The Ten Commandments are true, whether one acknowledges them or not. So, in spite of what the scribes and the Pharisees had done with the law and uh, crafting many traditions out of it, creating specificity and exactness and precision where it was not meant to be. It couldn't possibly, what is true, couldn't possibly be relaxed. It cannot disappear because it just is. The revealed ways of God and his character. So Jesus, speaking as God, for God as his appointed king, could not speak against the law and never does. Instead, he would reveal how it was to be understood. He would reveal the heart. So with each command of wisdom, each insight into wisdom, he gives the heart of it. And so it could be understood in its fullness, in its completeness. Jesus came not to abolish the law and prophets, but to fulfill them in another sense. So we cannot abolish what is true. But he also fulfills another part of the law and prophets. Israel was never able, Israel was never able, no human was ever able to fulfill righteousness, to actually obey how we were made to live. Israel and all people always have entered the curse, live under the curse. Walking into self-destruction, Israel as a whole nation, 
embrace self-destruction. They did not, in fact, hold fast to God. They did not, in fact, love him or walk in his ways. They didn't embrace him. Instead of embracing what would fill their souls, they embraced the very things that would unmake them, undo them. They would unravel God's design in them, degrade them, turn them, like in Narnia, towards the nature of beasts. The law calls it curses, and it comes with judgment. It comes with the natural consequence of choosing what is not God. God the just gives people separation from him. When chosen, he grants it. That's the judgment of the curse. Well, this is why God had given the ceremonial law. So we've been talking about the moral law, which is just the way things are. The ceremonial law, this was the system of sacrifices. This was the way he gave for repentance to be expressed. The law made clear mercy was needed, and so he, God gave away. This is how you plead for mercy. This is how you ask for forgiveness. They needed sacrifice. And all of the sacrifices, we know, as Christians, we know this. All of the sacrifices of the ceremonial law pointed to Jesus. This is what he would fulfill. He didn't come to abolish either the moral law or the ceremonial law. In the moral law, he came to live it, to fulfill it. In the ceremonial law, he came to satisfy it, to meet all that it pointed to. To do what the prophets had said, he was wounded for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. And by his stripes, we are healed. So in this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus brings to the fore, he brings to the center the heart of the law. What makes for righteousness, loving the Lord your God, walking in his ways, and holding fast to him. That's the message of the sermon. It's strange and tragic that we, we Christians do with Jesus' words what the Pharisees did with the law. We turn the blessed Sermon on the Mount into a legal system. And we, we receive it as if it's chains when it's our freedom. Well, we weren't there to hear the teaching. We're not, we weren't that crowd. But it was written for us. It was written down that those who believe would know what he taught. And in the moment, this is delightful, in the moment, the moment itself, we have a picture of the kingdom of God. It's for us, this picture. Jesus, the eternal son, God incarnate, the eternal word, the lawgiver, the almighty God, draws near to people. He's sitting on it. God himself is sitting on a mountain. 
And he comes to meet us who are under the curse. It's right there, the, the picture. And he calls. He calls to all, come, come near, come near. And his people draw near. There's a huge crowd sitting, ready to hear him as he opens his mouth and teaches them. He himself is going to have to break the curse. They can't do it. But the way of blessing remains as it always has been from the Garden of Eden. The way of blessing is to love the Lord and to hold fast to his words. That has never changed. From the moment of the creation of the first people, Love the Lord and hold fast to his words. And as he sits on the mountain, he says, come, you under the curse. I'm about to bless you like you can't imagine. Come near. And he opened his mouth and he spoke to them. Give me your attention. Hear what I have to say. And even now, that's what he's doing. We can, we can even imagine this ourselves. We, a crowd gathered here, the Lord speaking, not the, the Holy Spirit speaking to us as we worship him, as we sing his songs of praise, as his word is taught, as we pray. He's saying, come near, give me your attention, hold fast to my words. We cannot generate more love for God by trying. Have you tried? We hear, this, we hear the message, love the Lord your God. And so I want to, I want to do it. Love God more. It doesn't even make sense what we're trying to do there. How do I love him? I can't urge you to love God more, and you just do it. Like saving us, as God has saved us, he also grants us more love. We could not save ourselves. We cannot generate more love for him. Love comes from God. It's his character. It's his nature. He gives it to us. He in, this is how, as we see it on the mountain, he invites, we draw near. He speaks his word. He speaks his word in our songs. He speaks his word in the scriptures read. He speaks his word in our prayers, in our actions together. He speaks his word when you are listening to his word at home, when you are praying, he speaks his word. We receive, we listen and we receive, and he grows our love. He does it. And our wills follow. What the heart loves, the will chooses. But love for God is a gift from God. We're finishing. In a few weeks, we begin the Lenten season. 
And in the Lenten season, we, we bring to the forefront of our minds this acknowledgement that uh, we fall back continually into the ways of the curse. The fallen world, the fallen flesh. And like those crowds that were on the mountainside, we have to heed his words, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poverty of spirit, poor in spirit, is an inner admission, an acknowledgement, consciousness of, a disposition of need, a sense of helplessness, because we have that helplessness. Jesus says, blessed are those who have helplessness because it's the true account of every human being. Blessed are you who acknowledges what is in fact the truth, poverty of spirit. All people by nature are in poverty of spirit. The blessing comes in acknowledging it. The curse comes in denying it. I am not, there is a curse to say, I am not poor in spirit. I do not have need for God. That's curse. So, to, to own it, which we do in Lent, in a particular intentional way, to own our desperate need for God, to admit there's no ultimate life without Him, it's to embrace the kingdom. It's to find our place in it. God's kingdom is for those who will bow to him as king. And it's for only those who have stepped off their inner throne who could admit poverty, who can actually embrace that, live that place. So this week, this week I encourage you, pursue the Beatitudes. Look at the wisdom that Jesus gives us there. Search them, ponder them, but understand they're not revealing a new law. They're not revealing a new set of rules. They're showing the heart of the old one, the heart of the, the unchanging one, the eternal one, to live in Jesus, to faithfully cling to him and his mercy, to hold fast to his words. That's living according to the eternal law of God. Love the Lord your God, walk in his ways, and hold fast to him. Our Lord, Lord, we thank you that not only have you made your world in a way that is thoroughly consistent, that makes sense when you're at the center and we take our place where you've made us to be, thank you that blessing flows from that, peace with you. Thank you that as we cling to your words and we heed you, you do grow love for you. So fill us, we pray. Fill us with yourself. In Jesus' name.